This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Rob Arnott, and he is the creator and chairman of Research Affiliates, uh, a fundamental indexing firm that has strategies that manage over $200 billion in assets. Uh, Rob is perhaps best known for popularizing the concept of fundamental indexing, uh, often called smart beta, although he has uh, takes issue with, with that um, moniker. He thinks it's just become a marketing term. Uh, this is really a fascinating conversation. Every time I speak with Rob, I learn something new. Uh, this time I discovered that he has co-authored a number of papers with the great Peter Bernstein, which was something I, I didn't previously know. If you are at all interested in things like fundamental indexing, what's wrong with market cap weighting, uh, how large that sector can grow, the advantages of factor-based investing, and I also learned that there are now over 500 such factors. I had no idea. I knew it was hundreds. I had no idea it was that many. Uh, this is really a masterclass uh, in this space. So with no further ado, here is my conversation with Rob Arnott. My extra special guest this week is Rob Arnott. He is the founder and chairman of Research Affiliates, perhaps best known for popularizing the concept of smart beta, better known or better described as fundamental indexing. Uh, Rafi does not consider market cap, focusing instead on four primary factors, sales, profit, book value, and dividend. Arnott formed the firm in 2002 in Newport Beach, California. Investment strategies developed by research affiliates, or Rafi as it's better known, manages over $200 billion in assets. Rob Arnott, welcome back to Bloomberg. Thank you. So I mentioned you started Research Affiliates, and I'm used to just calling it Rafi is, mm -hmm. is the nickname everybody uses. Uh, back in 2002, could you have imagined then that it's barely 15 years later and your strategies are now managing over $200 billion? Did you have any expectation of how wildly successful Smart Beta would become? Those are two different questions. Did I expect to be this successful? Yes. Mm -hmm. Nobody starts a business without a healthy dose of optimism. Okay. Perhaps sometimes yeah. uh, undeserved, but but even still, that's a big chunk of change. Did you expect to hit those sort of numbers this quickly? Um, oh, I don't know how quick that is. 16 years uh, is a long time. Mm -hmm. um, but... Uh, as for Rafi, the fundamental index uh, and its growth, I couldn't have anticipated that because we hadn't come up with the idea yet. When, when did that first roll out? Uh, we first thought about the idea of indexing in non-capitalization ways in 2003. Uh -huh. We formalized our research and um, completed development of the idea by mid-04. We were live with assets by the end of 04. First fund was launched by PIMCO in 05. Um, first published index was by FTSE um, in November of 05. So, so when, it's barely a dozen years. That's even faster to scale up. To, yeah, not a lot of firms yeah. scale up to $200 billion in a dozen years. No, that's true. That's true. But keep in mind, it's not 
200 billion of assets under management. We license the idea through distribution partners, mm-hmm. so we have the help of PIMCO, uh, Schwab, um, Invesco, Nomura, uh, FTSE, and Russell. Uh, and you couldn't get any on. names that anybody recognized? <laughs> we keep looking. We keep hoping somebody n- known actually signs on to the idea. So that's, let's, let's digress and talk about that a, a moment. That's a fascinating model where – now, I know you guys also manage money directly. Not, not anymore. N- not anymore. Oh, right. so that's, that's a change since the last time you were here. Yeah. When did you stop directly managing money? We decided in 2014 mm-hmm. that um, 5% of our assets under, quote, management, close quote, were mm-hmm. money, was money that we actually managed. 15% of our revenues came uh-huh. from that. And the tail was wagging the dog. We were winding up uh, with distribution partners fearful that we were going to compete directly with them. That makes sense. And we decided... We don't need these complications. Let's stick to what we're best at. And so we approached PIMCO, our largest affiliate, and in effect said, would you like this $8 billion book of business? Um, And they said? They said uh, at a price tag of zero, that's not a bad deal. I think we'll go for it. You know, if you would have come to me, I I would have given you the same deal they gave you. Oh my goodness! That didn't cross my mind. I wish I wish I'd thought of that. <laughs> so, so this is kind of fascinating. So, what I find so intriguing about your model, in addition to the intellectual property, essentially you're in the business of licensing these indices to other people to do, you know, the roll up your sleeves and do the trading, do the client servicing, do which is complex and filled with risk and expensive so you really have the sweetest part of uh, of the pie for us it's the sweetest part because uh it's what we love to do and it's what you you i ostensibly would imagine you do best let the other people who are experts in trading and yeah. what have you um i think not being involved in trading back office uh, mm-hmm. call desks is a wonderful thing. Um, I think there are people who are really good at that, and I want them to do what they're really good at. In effect, being uh, in the business of product innovation and licensing, uh, we face an unusually high hurdle because our clients are our distribution partners, Uh and they don't need us. They have their own R&D teams. Yeah. And so... For our business to succeed, um, they have to see us as an extension of their own R&D team, complementary to what they do. And uh, not all organizations can think that way. Uh, You have to be willing to go against the not-invented-here syndrome. So that sort of puts a little more heft on the name of the firm, Research Affiliates, Mm -hmm. because essentially you provide intellectual... Um, property and research strength to the affiliates you work with. I never really thought of it in quite those terms, but really, Mm -hmm. that's what Rafi does. That's exactly right. Uh, Was that intentional, or did you just happen to stumble on that? Um, A little bit of both. I was running First Quadrant at the time and had decided if I'm ever going to start my own business, uh, I ought to do it sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. And so... I was running both in parallel for two years. 
running both in parallel for two years meant uh, I had to studiously avoid conflicts of interest. So Mm -hmm. initially we started out saying, let's sub-advise, let's license our ideas, and we found that that business model works, so we stuck with it. Quite fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about factors investing. Um, Fama French famously identified first the three-factor model, then the five-factor model, then the seven-factor model. Are there still factors out there that have yet to be discovered? Two answers to that question. Firstly, yes, there will be. There have already been 500 factors published. 500. And um, there will be hundreds more. Mm-hmm. Now, the more pertinent question is how much of this is data mining, right? finding relationships that prevailed in the past that have no reason to prevail in the future, right? and how much of it is um, truly factors that drive price mm-hmm. that can be truly a reliable source of excess Me- return. Meaning, uh, is there enough outperformance here that can be captured buy a portfolio. Exactly. So of those five, so if these were really good factors, why wouldn't we create a, if not a 500 factor portfolio, hey, let's put these in order of the strongest outperformance generators. And here are the 50 or 25 best factors. Why can't we do that? Well, I wrote a paper a couple of years ago called How Can Smart Beta Go Horribly Wrong? (laughs) And I remember that. It was massively controversial. I thought the controversy was amusing Mm -hmm. because if I'd written a paper entitled How Can Stock Picking Go Horribly Wrong? And I offered the the sage insight that if a stock soars and its fundamentals haven't, so its valuation multiples have soared, its past returns will look artificially wonderful. Mm Mm-hmm. And if there's any mean reversion on valuations, its future performance will, to use a technical term, suck. (laughs) So um, people would have read that paper and said, what's this nitwit talking about? Everybody knows that. Right. By saying exactly the same thing about factors and smart beta strategies, uh, I was pilloried for suggesting that the same thing could apply for strategies. Now, if you go back historically, you find that the alpha of many of the smart beta factors uh, have, has, has not been tested in terms of how much of that excess return came from rising valuation multiples. Mm-hmm. We might as well have a, an Apple factor mm-hmm. that simply says Apple has outperformed magnificently. It is a powerful factor. You have a long Apple short everything else factor, mm-hmm. and because of the past performance, we know it's going to continue to work. Let's digress a little bit and and define factors for people who may not be familiar with Gene Fama, who won the Nobel Prize a few years ago for his for a, a lot of his work. Um, the original, and it's Gene Fama and Ken French at Dartmouth. Fama is at Chicago. Mm-hmm. The original Fama French. Uh, factor paper was small capitalization, value, and I'm trying to remember, was it momentum or quality? No, market. The, market beta. Market beta. So that's, that's the three. Okay. And then when we moved to five? We, we added um, uh, quality and momentum, right. I believe. So that's the next lot. 
And then seven, I don't even know what the next I, two are. I'm not certain, but I think it's uh, illiquidity and investment. Right. So so all of this comes back to, let's let's keep it simple, low-cost stocks over long periods of time, low, uh, uh, better value stocks, not expensive stocks, I don't mean low price, right. tend to outperform expensive stocks over the long haul. Exactly right. Now, advocates of efficient markets will say it's got to be because of some kind of hidden risk, because you can't get something for nothing. Um, I would push back against that and say it's not risk with value. It might be risk with small cap because there, and then there's the liquidity issues. But mm -hmm. with value, it's the psychology, it's the behavior exactly. side of who wants to buy this. Domino's is one of my favorite examples. Domino's had a big, a whole run of issues late 90s, early 2000s. The stock did poorly. People were thinking, all right, well, that chain is pretty much done. And Domino's over the past, I think it's either 15 or 20 years, has handily outperformed Apple. I may yeah. be getting the time frame wrong. But yeah. so, and that's the psychology of uh, who wants to touch that. And if you look from the trough in 2009, uh, City ever so briefly dipped below a buck. Mm -hmm. uh, I B remember of, that. B of A dipped to roughly two bucks. And since then, those have handily outperformed Apple. Um, so, but they've outperformed it from a starting point of being thought on death's door. Right. So value, it seems to me, does have a behavioral basis. Basically, when you have a value orientation, you're buying what's unloved, what people want to shun. That should be rewarded. Now, is it a hidden risk factor? Only psychologically. Well... Let me, let me push back a little bit over there. Two companies in the financial crisis look terrible. One mm -hmm. of them's AIG, the other's Lehman Brothers. You can buy AIG, rescued, and, and since pretty decent, not great, but pretty decent returns off of the bottom. Right. And Lehman, I guess we could call that a value trap. Although there were elements of fraud and Repo 105, there was a whole different set of problems with Lehman. But... The risk with value is, am I buying something that's going to be a zero? That's known as a value trap. It's a stock that looks cheap on its way to zero. <laughs> now, it's hard to have a whole sector that looks cheap on its way to zero. I coined the term anti-bubble in 2009 to describe what I perceived as the inverse of a bubble, where an entire sector of the economy is priced as if they're all headed for oblivion, when in fact... Every failure clears the runway for the survivors to have higher profits, higher margins, and greater success ahead. So unless you wanted to um, accept the notion of Armageddon, mm -hmm. the end of the economy, uh, you, it made sense to think that collectively this sector was being dismissed when it shouldn't be. There's a whole group of people that are the Armageddon traders. I think the FT called them the plastic bears. Mm -hmm. They'll scream Armageddon, but then they'll, here's what we can sell you while we're waiting for Armageddon. Right. Um, the other thing about anti-bubble is so fascinating. You could say there's an anti-bubble in, what was it, home builders in 05 and mortgage brokers and bankers in 06 and pretty much anything else in finance in 07 and each Almost year. Almost every... There's almost always some sort of bubble in the market somewhere and some sort of anti-bubble in the market somewhere. 
you go back to early 2016, emerging markets deep value was priced at two to three times cash flow. Mm-hmm. And it's not as if the emerging economies of the world were collectively all going to go bust. So it represented an extraordinary opportunity. RAFI, the fundamental index in emerging markets, was briefly trading for a Schiller P.E. ratio below six. Wow, that's amazing. Let's talk about a study you did way back when, looking at the S&P 500 index, which theoretically is a passive, and we'll put a footnote on exactly what (laughs) passive means, index. You found from 1989 to... 2017, the last year, there was a full year of data available. Stocks added to the index underperformed those that were kicked out by an average of 23 percentage points over the ensuing 12 months. It's not a bad gap in return. Oh, my goodness. That's amazing. So so what are the implications of this, and what does this mean about the stock-picking acumen of the editors on the committee of the S&P index who select the stocks that go into it. I don't fault the index committee for the way they make choices. They they're under their clients are the people who license the index. Right. And the people who license the index want the index to include all the names that are hot, beloved, and are embarrassing not to have in the index. Uh just added was Twitter as of this taping. Okay. Um and if there's a stock that has been brutalized, unloved, dirt cheap, and nobody wants it, it's embarrassing to have it in the index. So, of course, they're going to take those out. Now, what happens is two things. Firstly, they announce a change, and they announce the date the change will take effect. That gives the index funds a grace period in which to trade where they're going to move those stock prices – And those stocks will still be in the index, so it won't create a performance drag. Hey, everybody, please front-run our trades. Well, there's a hedge fund community that does exactly that. So the trades are made, the uh, positions built, and then given over to the index funds on the effective date, Mm -hmm. uh, preferably at or near the close. The... Stocks added, when you compare them with the discretionary deletions, deletions that aren't related to corporate actions, um, outperform by nearly 9% during that grace period. So when index funds say we don't move stock prices with our trading, that's that's rubbish. Um, they let other people move it on their behalf, and they could say, oh, look, we haven't moved this. Well, there's that, and then there's also the simple fact that the ads beat the discretionary deletions by 9% during a period of days. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a big move. So you also have part of that 23% return difference in the subsequent year is simply mean reversion, taking the price impact of the index funds back out. And part of it is quite simply the stocks added are extravagantly expensive on average, and the stocks dropped are usually at deep discounts. Um, over 90% of the ads are companies trading at premium multiples. Over 90% of the discretionary deletes are trading at a discount. And the average gap between valuation multiples of the ads and of the deletes is more than three to one. That, that's amazing. So let me make the case for quote-unquote, passive indexing. I I think smart beta, let me caveat this, smart beta is the the wrong phrase. It should be fundamental indexing. 
passive investing is the wrong phrase. It should be low-cost indexing. But here's the pro-indexing argument, and I want you to take this argument apart. This is the most cost-effective, least expensive way to get exposure to equities. Uh, it has the lowest amount of turnover, the least amount of tax consequences, and everybody seems to have the greatest difficulty outperforming the S&P 500, so we're going to keep using that as a benchmark going forward. Discuss. The Bill Sharp wrote a piece in the 1990s uh, entitled The Arithmetic of Active Investing, and it, it's a very simple thesis. It, the market is capitalization-weighted. The index funds span almost all of the market and is capitalization-weighted. You take that portfolio, all of the indexers, out, and what's left is what active managers collectively own, well, it's the same portfolio, give or take some wiggle room. Mm -hmm. So if it's the same portfolio, active managers should have the same performance as index funds minus costs, and the costs are higher for active managers. That arithmetic is not just true, it's a truism. Mm -hmm. That means that if you're choosing active managers with absolutely no skill, you should expect to earn index returns minus. Um, when you choose an active manager, uh, this doesn't mean choosing active managers is a waste of time. What it does mean is you'd better have a good answer to the question, if this active manager is a winner, so there's a loser on the other side of their trades. Right. Who's the loser and why are they a willing loser? For fundamental index, the answer to that is really simple. This is a strategy that contra-trades against the market's biggest and most extravagant bets. And so the loser on the other side of the trade is the performance-chasing lemmings who are legion. Here's the Bill Miller pushback. Most active managers are, as you've described, with a very low active share, and essentially, they're closet indexers, so why on earth should anybody pay a high fee when you could pay a low fee and get 95% of the same portfolio? Fair, fair criticism? It's a fair criticism. There's a lot of active managers hiding the bushes near the benchmark. <laughs> Most active <laughs> managers are constantly looking over their shoulder at the benchmark and worrying about beating it. The beauty of fundamental index and of smart beta as it was originally defined Smart beta originally meant strategies that break the link with price, that don't pay any attention to market capitalization or price in setting the weight of a stock. Mm -hmm. This term has been stretched to the point of meaninglessness. Right. But um, under that definition, you do have the advantage that you're going to be contra-trading against the market's biggest bets, um, whether you're equal weighting or fundamental index or minimum variance, you're going to be having an anchor, a target weight, that isn't related to price. So as the price soars and tumbles, you're going to be selling and buying. It's a built-in structural sell-high, buy-low discipline. Fascinating. We were talking uh, earlier about traditional uh, passive investing or, or low-cost indexing. Let's, let's do a little bit of a compare and contrast with um, fundamental indexing, and we touched on this. I want to give you a quote from Burton Malkiel. Smart beta strategies are riskier than index funds and not right for individual investors. What is Professor Malkiel getting wrong there? 
Molecule comes from the efficient markets community. He yes. he believes he he wrote Random Walk Down Wall Street back in I think the sixties. Um, it's interesting to note that if you believe that um, the the share prices equal a fair value that we cannot see, mm-hmm. plus or minus an error adding up to the price. And if you believe the market is constantly hunting for those errors and trying to fix them so that the error is mean reverting, mm-hmm. then contra trading against big price moves has a structural alpha. Mm-hmm. That is, in fact, the key driver of the value effect. If you look at value strategies, the alpha comes from the rebalancing, not from the cheapness of the stocks. Well, isn't that the same thing? When we say a stock is cheap, we're essentially saying it's trading at a discount to its fair value. And once that rebalance occurs, it should snap back to that, and there are gains. Well, just as an example, fundamental index overweight stocks that are trading at discounts proportional to the magnitude of the discount. Mm-hmm. Underweight stocks trading at, dis- at premiums proportional to the magnitude of the premium. So you're systematically downweighting the growth stocks and upweighting the value stocks. You're saying, thanks for the gains on the growth stocks. Let me trim it back to its economic footprint. Thank you for the discounts on the value stocks, reweighting it back up. So there's a structural value tilt. Well, why then does this strategy relentlessly beat cap-weighted value indexes, Russell value, EFA value, EFA emerging markets value, um, winning against the value indexes 70 or 80% of the time year by year. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does so for the simple reason that value indexes are themselves cap-weighted, so they're going to overweight the overvalued and underweight the undervalued value stocks. Even within the universe of, of value. Correct. Um, think of it this way. If uh, a stock outperforms in the future, then it must have been under, underpriced today. If it underperforms in the future, it must have been overpriced today. And what stocks get the most weight in a cap-weighted portfolio? Those that are overpriced. So let's, let's address that because that raises a really interesting question. When we look at cap-weighted indexes, we end up owning more of the names that are outperforming. Have been outperforming. Have been outperforming. Have been outperforming. And since we know momentum is a factor, the assumption is that those outperformers will at least for some finite period in the future continue to outperform. So we end up owning more of the winners that are keeping winning and less of the losers that are keeping losing, or so goes the cap-weighted index uh, argument. What's wrong with that claim. Don't we want more exposure to stocks that are winning? Here's what's fascinating. Yeah, momentum is a powerful factor across multiple asset classes spanning decades. But within stocks, momentum was first published by professors Jagadish and Titman back in 1992 or three. Mm-hmm. And since 1999, momentum as a strategy in the stock market hasn't worked. That is to say, well, it hasn't worked. It's underperformed some other uh, factors. No, high performing stocks have underperformed low performing stocks on average since '99. So, uh, is that due to the dot com crash and the great financial crisis? How is it operated? And I know you can't say I only want to invest when we're not 
in a bubble or in a, a crisis, but how significant were those events to the underperformance of outperformance? Tremendously significant. And you put your finger on it that when you have a strategy that outperforms for a while, then crashes, outperforms for a while, then crashes, net-net, it can look terrible. If you can use it only when it's going to work, great. Let me know um, when you set up an index that does that. Exactly. Well, <laughs> in point of fact, when um, when momentum is telling you the extravagantly priced growth stocks are the ones with momentum, that's when it's more likely to have a crash than at other times. When momentum is saying the value stocks have turned and are showing positive momentum, mm -hmm. that's when momentum historically works best. So the combination of the two, value and momentum, tends to be a really nice combination. But be very careful about using momentum when it's telling you to chase bubble stocks. If you can switch it off, do. So let's talk about the combination of value and momentum. Uh, Wes Gray of Alpha Architect wrote a, a piece whose, whose um, title I love about combining value and momentum, which essentially says even God would get fired as an active manager. And he said, he suggests that while we know the combination of value and momentum outperforms just about any other combination you can come up with, there are these occasional drawdowns that can be brutal. Absolutely. So, so how do we explain why value and momentum outperforms just about any other combination of factors if we still get these really horrific periods of time where, gee, this doesn't seem to be yeah. working? Well, simple fact is no strategy is going to work all the time. Uh, contrarian investing is arguably the most powerful and reliable uh, long-term form of investing. Basically, whatever is newly cheap is going to have performed terribly. It will have inflicted pain and losses. People don't want more of that. Imagine an investor saying, oh, I just lost a ton of money on this. Give me more of that. <laughs> uh, that's what a contrarian investor does. Um, a strategy that's provided great joy and profit, a stock that's provided great joy and profit. Uh, how many people look at that and say, oh, get me out of here? That's what a contrarian investor does. Mm -hmm. And so with contrarian investing, you're going against the crowd. That's profoundly uncomfortable. And whenever it fails, whenever it doesn't add value because the expensive popular stocks are getting more expensive and the cheap garbage stocks are getting more cheap, Anytime it does fail, people start to think you're an absolute idiot. So, so let's talk about that for a second, because my office has a value tilt, uh, as uh, does uh, everything that the research affiliate, or many, I shouldn't say everything, but many Pretty of much the everything, yeah. Just, just about. And yet we're in a period where we have the FANG stocks, we have these tech companies doing great, and value is going through one of its periodic stretches of underperformance where people stop and say, I understand the concept behind value, but look at Netflix. Why exactly. do we why do we want to own these cheap stocks? The expensive stocks are doing great. So two part question. A, uh, why do we go through these periodic spasms of, of significant underperformance? And B, is that what enables value to over the long haul outperform growth? Let me answer B first. 
Yes, that's exactly why it outperforms in the long run, because it's uncomfortable. But the periods, and because when it goes through a period of disappointment, it's very easy for people to abandon a strategy that's sure. uncomfortable. The uh, Making the cheap stocks that have become cheaper even cheaper still. Correct. So it is really important. When we wrote the paper, How Can Smart Beta Go Horribly Wrong?, we showed that when a strategy becomes more expensive, it creates a, a surge in relative performance, making the strategy look unusually powerful while so, sowing seeds for future uh, disappointment because the strategy is newly expensive. The same thing applies to value. Value in 2000 was profoundly cheap. The gap between mm -hmm. growth stocks and value stocks was 8 to 1 in valuation wow. terms. Um, by 2007, it was 2.5 to 1. Mm -hmm. 2.5 to 1 sounds like a big gap. It's not. It's considerably narrower than usual. And so in 2007, objectively, value was priced high relative to its own history. Huh. And that's what set the stage for the quant crash in August of 2007. That was a very crowded trade. A lot of people had. Mm -hmm. But that, you know, you, you, you reference quants. That makes me think of a quote of yours, which I don't believe is still true. Or maybe you could disabuse me of that notion. You once wrote, our industry hates arithmetic. Now, that was certainly true decades ago, given the amount of things amount of assets managed by quantitative strategies, and just the, the flood of smart quant analysts coming into the industry, does finance still hate arithmetic? Oh my goodness, yes. It doesn't hate mathematics. The notion of quantitative methods, probably almost more popular than ever before. Only 2007 might even come close. Mm -hmm. But the notion of simple arithmetic, the arithmetic of returns is you earn a yield, you have a growth in income, and you have changes in valuation multiples. If you know those three numbers, you know your rate of return. Disaggregating historical returns into those three components gives you a very clear picture of where returns came from. And looking ahead, you know what the yield is. You know that historical growth is probably not a bad predictor for future growth, which mm -hmm. leaves you valuation change. If valuations are high, you're more likely to have mean reversion down. If valuations are low, you're more likely to have mean reversion up. So when markets are expensive, you have a lousy yield. Growth is what it is. And valuations are more likely to come down than rise. And when markets are cheap, the opposite holds true. So that's the arithmetic people hate. When we're in the 10th year of a bull market, 10th year of an economic expansion, when times are good and people have had wonderful success, their expectations for future returns go up, not down. Now that's interesting because... When markets are rising and yields are falling, your forward-looking return is is eroding. Right. Your retur expected return should be lower when things are pricey and higher when they're cheap. Right. And people think the opposite way. Um, it's interesting. At the market lows in 87, in 2002, 
uh, and again in 2009, each of those three episodes, I found myself on a plane next to somebody who was saying, I'm never going to be investing in the stock market again. <laughs> All three times. All that's, three times. That's fascinating. Can you stick around? I have a ton more questions for you. Sure can. We have been speaking with Rob Arnott. He is the founder and chairman of Research Affiliates. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out our podcast extras, where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things smart beta. You can find that wherever finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Check out my daily column on bloomberg.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Rob, thank you so much for doing this. You, uh, We were discussing earlier, you were one of the original people we kind of first tested the water with the podcast with. This is back, a great series. Back in 2014, I want to say. That Sounds we, about right. That's that's when we launched it. And um, you're, you're one of the people where a couple of years later, I kind of said, oh, I wanted to ask him about this. I didn't even bring up that. I forgot this. I forgot that. I, I got to bring him back and go over some of these things. So thank you so much for, for returning. I'm fond of saying this is the most fun I have all week. So... Uh, this is a uh, poor you. Yeah, right. I have, to, <laughs> I have to sit down with people like you and Danny Kahneman and Ray Dalio and Howard Marks. That is my cross to bear. Yeah, yeah. And, and hopefully, it's uh, tough duty. Yes, yeah, so, so it's an ugly, dirty job, but somebody's got to do it. Let's. Um, there's a ton of stuff I didn't get to, and since we were talking about expensive stocks and tech stocks, let's talk a little bit about Fang. Uh, we see the Fang stocks that have you know, just taken off over the past five or so years. But there's also, let's do a compare and contrast with the 1990s. These are real businesses with actual revenues Some and, of them are. and profits. Well, Apple, Amazon, uh, Netflix, Google, go down the top 10 uh, tech stocks. It's not like the ephemeral, or, or is it? Let me ask you the question as opposed to answering what are the parallels between today and the sort of mania we saw in the 1990s? Are there parallels? There sure are. Um, I wrote a paper recently entitled, Yes, It's a Bubble, So What? Okay, that's one of my questions. Let's, let's go over that because I love the title of it. Yeah. The point of the paper is twofold. Um, one point that we make is that the term is bandied about without a definition. A bubble. Bubble. Mm -hmm. And so we make an effort to give a um, an objective definition that people can actually use as a test for saying, is this a bubble? And that objective definition is one where simple measures of fundamental business success you have to make um, 
exceptionally aggressive assumptions to justify the price of mm-hmm. a stock or a sector or a country. So you don't like the Potter Stewart definition, I know it when I see it? Uh, it's a little vague. Right, referring back little, to the pornography oh, yeah, case. Yeah, just a uh, little vague. And the second part of the definition is that the marginal buyer is somebody who is not buying because of a careful analysis of fair value, but is buying because they expect to be able to resell to somebody else at a higher price. The the greater fool theory. Correct. So you look at the fangs today, the marginal buyer in most cases is not somebody who's done careful analysis of forward-looking expected rates of return. The other parallel with the tech bubble is that um, at the peak of the tech bubble, five of the eight largest market cap companies on the planet were tech companies. Mm -hmm. Today, seven of the eight largest are tech companies. The valuations aren't as extravagant as they were in 2000, but the concentration uh, at the top of the list in global market cap is even more. So let me push back on that, because we've we've been debating this um, with some folks in the office. So technology today represents the culmination of human ingenuity and effort, and why wouldn't technology companies that don't require a giant infrastructure. Think back to the railroads. It costs inflation-adjusted billions to lay thousands of miles of tracks and all the manpower you had to hire and locomotives and, and rail cars and all that stuff. Uh, you know, Capital-intensive. Right. Completely capital-intensive, completely labor-intensive. Mm-hmm. Now, a, a startup is a couple of guys on a laptop mm-hmm. and an internet connection So you don't have the same capital requirements. You don't have the same labor intensity. And the ability to scale is immense. So shouldn't the, A, shouldn't these companies be trading at a premium? And B, shouldn't they be dominating the market? Because, hey, this is the future and technology is driving us all with robots and driverless cars and automation and you name it. You tell me which companies are going to be the center of... Uh, innovation 10 years from now, and I will happily acknowledge that those companies deserve massive valuations today, huge multiples. The problem with that thesis is really simple, and that's casting a broad net. Uh, You're going to have a lot of companies with a fantastic story. Back in 2000, the story was these companies are changing. It's a new paradigm. These mm-hmm. companies are changing the way we do business, the way we communicate. They're radically reshaping the macro economy. And this industry is going to be changing our world. So, of course, they deserve massive premium multiples. What was overlooked was that these companies were disruptors and the disruptors themselves get disrupted. Eventually. Often very fast. So how many search engines preceded Google? How 20. many yeah, how many uh, handheld uh, devices preceded the iPhone and were seen as utterly dominant? Right. Um, Blackberry owned that market for the yeah, longest period Palm. of time. Yeah, Palm. Palm briefly was trading for a market cap greater than General Motors, and, and both of them eventually went to zero. Mm-hmm. So you have 
an industry with massive change. Here's a fascinating thing. The 10 largest market cap companies in technology in the U.S. in the year 2000, um, how many of those outperformed in the 18 years before the start of 2000 and the start of this year? Zero. Mm-hmm. Not a I, single one. Not one beat the, the market. The fascinating part about tell me the company's 10 years hence, look back 10 years ago, there was no go down the list. Facebook wasn't public. Twitter wasn't public. Netflix wasn't public. Actually, Netflix was public, but they were sending DVDs through the mail. Right. Uh, go down the whole list and go the 10 years bef- previous to that. Google wasn't public. You could, you could. Apple mm-hmm. was thought to be going bankrupt. Exactly. Amazon was a glimmer in Jeff Bezos's eye. So it's ten years doesn't seem like a long time, but making a forecast ten years hence, it's all but impossible. You could get lucky, but here's another fascinating thing about um, bubbles and about markets in general. If you take the ten largest market cap companies on the planet. On average, only two of them are still on that list 10 years later. That's amazing. It's eight or under performers. Now, (laughs) the eight that fall off the list are obviously and assuredly performing worse than the eight that replace them. And the eight that are on the list. By definition. By definition. And the eight that are on the list today have a bigger weight than the ones that replace them. So you have this drag associated with capitalization waiting. So even the top 10 reinforces the notion of what's wrong with indexing. That doesn't make it easier for active managers to add value if they're looking over the shoulder and wondering, how am I hurting myself by not owning Netflix? Or uh, shouldn't I really take advantage of the dip and buy more Tesla? Now, I just we're recording this on a day when the Wall Street Journal had a column out. I'm sorry. It was Bloomberg had a column out that said Apple, a stone's throw away from a trillion dollars, and the biggest market cap company, is actually trading at a much lower multiple than the previous times when, at least on an inflation-adjusted basis, we had companies approaching the same level. Apple at 18 times is much cheaper than go down the list. When it was Qualcomm, when it was Microsoft, when it was whoever— uh, so are the fang, the, the problem I guess we run into, Apple, a new favorite of Warren Buffett's, is mm-hmm. cheap. Amazon, now that they're starting to show a profit, by any rational measure, other than pure growth and market uh, share, looks very expensive. So Yeah, as does WeWork and a bunch of others. Well, the, the private companies, Uber, WeWorks. Yeah. Theranos, that one didn't work out too well. But no, go exactly. down the list of the so-called unicorns. Mm-hmm. What does that tell us about how much capital is chasing exactly. finite goods? Exactly right. And when you're talking about the unicorns, the very simple fact is some of them are worth every penny of what their valuation is today. Can you tell I me I just which don't ones? know which ones. <laughs> and uh, if you can pick those... Um, uh, Google, since its IPO, has been a persistent favorite for value managers to underweight it. Really? And for value manager, for deep value managers to even short it. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's not working out so well. No. But for every Google, there's a Palm. Uh, there's uh, there's 
an array of companies where you look back and say, as you did with Theranos, that didn't work out so well. <laughs> when Theranos was hot, it was going to change the world. Right. But that was a an outright fraud. That's very different. And and Elizabeth Holmes, the founder and, and CEO, just settled fraud accusations from the S with the SEC. The company's laid off almost all of its staff. Uh, I heartily recommend Carrie Rue's book, Bad Blood. It's a fascinating read. Uh, and we'll get to books in a minute. But where there aren't cases of outright, where it isn't a scam, where it's which a legitimate company who, for whatever reason, its moment may have passed, how can you determine with any degree of confidence this is a company that's going to be around for 10 or 20 years? You I, can't. I'm, you can't. Um, ex ante, you can't say which of the popular beloved star companies are going to be around in 10 years, let alone which ones are going to outperform. If, if history is an example, uh, there were tech companies that were uh, uh, described as being sensibly priced in 2000 because they were only 20 times the two-year forward earnings. Well, look at Microsoft, which has since, under the new CEO, Sadia Nadella, mm -hmm. has since returned to, very quietly, has become the third largest or third most profitable company in the world, third largest uh, market cap. I don't know if that's in tech stocks or stocks in general. And that's something that kind of was left for dead uh, after the dot-coms. Exactly. So no one would have, very few people were predicting Microsoft was going to make a uh, comeback. I'm surprised Buffett, with his friendship with Gates, didn't recognize the value in Microsoft. Um, but the question that all this comes to is, if history tells us that these top 10 stocks, most of them are going to drop out of the top 10, is it simple valuation mean reversion, or is something else at work here? Part of it is valuation mean reversion. Part of it, we wrote a piece um, called Too Big to Succeed, mm -hmm. uh, kind of a play on the notion of too, too big, big to fail. And the point of that paper was largest market cap companies get there because they're big, successful businesses and trading at high multiples. Mm -hmm. You don't get to the top of a sector or top of the market without both conditions generally being true. For that reason, uh, these companies are likely to disappoint just on a valuation basis. Now, add on top of that the fact that now these companies are so visible that everyone's taking shots at them. Mm -hmm. Their competitors are after them. Regulators want to put a new notch on their uh, gun barrel. Uh, the list goes on and on. And so Apple goes from being a beloved, trendy darling to being uh, under attack from regulators all over the world, uh, questioned and challenged because of the bugginess of some of their um, uh, software these days. Look, look at General Electric as a perfect example. Was there a greater love darling than GE? In the in the nineties, not at all. And I, I, best of my recollection, it has not outperformed since then by much. No, it's got <laughs> it's gotten shellacked. So, I have to ask you: you keep referencing various white papers, um, how smart beta could go disastrously wrong, too big to succeed. There was one other you mentioned. When you and the research staff at Research Affiliates are thinking about writing a white paper or putting it together. Who is your target audience for that? Are you writing that? You know, Daniel Borstein very famously said, I write to figure out what I think. 
I'm going to suggest that's not the motivation. With your white papers, you guys already know what you think. Who is the target audience for those papers? You know, it's a really good question because there's not a really good answer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'd love for our papers to be accessible to the ordinary Joe on the street. Right. Mom and pop investors aren't really reading white papers. They aren't reading them, and uh, the papers are in many cases too subtle, too mathematical, too complicated. When I get to page seven and it's all formulas, that's where I tap out. Well, we don't do that. (laughs) We don't do formulas um, the way a finance journal would. But we do... I think our general target would be somebody with the sophistication of the average financial advisor. Mm -hmm. If we're writing over the heads of the average financial advisor, we're not doing anybody any good. If we're writing um, below that level, we run a risk of oversimplifying. Mm -hmm. And uh, we do love uh, challenging conventional wisdom. I've made a career out of looking at things that are generally perceived to be true and testing them. And sometimes they are true, and sometimes they're not. And when they're not, you get a uh, paper out of it that uh, rattles some cages and that maybe even can change the business in a modest way. So... um, One of the things that I've found is that when you write a paper that challenges conventional wisdom, there's somebody out there. In fact, usually there's lots of people out there who've made a career on that conventional wisdom, and boy, are they angry. (laughs) To say say the least. So uh, one of the questions that keeps coming up on the just low-cost indexing side is, uh, given the growth of, of Vanguard and BlackRock, $4 trillion and $5 trillion respectively, I think they're going to be five and six in a short period of time. The question that always comes up with low-cost passive indexes is, hey, how big can these get before it no longer works? I look at Smart Beta from 2012 to 2017, it tripled to over 600 billion. It's a stone's throw uh, now from a trillion. It's almost as big as Apple. Almost as big as Apple. (laughs) Almost as big as one stock. At what point? So there's, well, the biggest stock, but at what point does this top out? When does it become so large that everybody's doing it and therefore there's no outperformance in it? Firstly, smart beta has become a catch-all phrase that spans a lot of strategies, many of which aren't smart at all. Mm Mm-hmm. So the notion that it's just a label. Right. So let's stick, forget smart beta. I don't like passive indexing. I don't like smart beta. Let's stick with fundamental indexing, and we'll stick with price to sales, price to earnings, price to book value, price to dividend, mm-hmm. which I think is a the fundamentals where, where research right. affiliates began. And that's, did we say that's 90% or, or more of the indices you... Uh, create. Um, it's it's about eighty um, percent of our AUM. Okay. Uh, the rest is global asset allocation strategies. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of capacity, different so-called smart beta strategies have different capacity. Some of them are very high turnover. 
um, heavily involved in illiquid companies. For instance, um, uh, Roger Ibbotson's favorite strategy is an illiquidity strategy. Mm-hmm. You're going to focus on companies with low liquidity. If you're r- trying to run $100 billion using that, forget Doesn't it. Doesn't work. Not right. even a chance. That, but that works for a small niche fund, and that's fine. Absolutely. Now, Fundamental Index, still to this day, pretty much unique among the so-called smart beta strategies does have vast capacity. Why? You're spanning the broad macro economy. You're owning pretty much everything. Right. Your trading consists of contra-trading against the market's most extreme bets. So when a price is soaring, you're trimming. Well, it's easy to find a counterparty to those trades. If a stock is tumbling, you're buying. It's easy to find a counterparty to those trades. Your, Your trading is spread across... A thousand companies instead of concentrated, as with S&P 500 indexation, in whatever stocks are being added or deleted that particular week. So let me channel Jack Bogle and say, all that makes perfect sense, but all that trading is expensive and the gains are offset by your turnover and your trading costs. We're selling what people want to buy. We're buying what people want to sell. So our trading costs at this stage have been immeasurably small mm-hmm. at some stage at some size we start to move prices right. we're not there yet right. 180 billion and we're not there yet you know there's a ways to go before you have to really be concerned about that the trading costs for in- cl- classic cap weighted indexing uh, are much more vivid much more substantial measurably so because during that grace period, you get a 9% spread between additions and discretionary deletions. Well, but that's not the trading cost. That's the actual NAV gain or loss from the trade. They What do they do? They lose half a dozen stocks. They add half a dozen stocks. They do that once a year. Their trading costs, mm, according S&P to them. does it multiple times a year twice on a one year. or two or three stocks. When there's mergers, when there's takeouts, yeah. when there's things like that. But when I look at something like a, a price-to-earnings to ratio, mm-hmm. um, when you're buying things fundamentally ranked by earnings, that changes quarterly. How often do you have to rebalance that, that index? There's two flavors of fundamental index. The original, FTSE RAFI, mm-hmm. rebalances once a year and has 10 to 15% annual turnover. That's all. Mm-hmm. And that 10 to 15% is spread across a thousand companies, Mm -hmm. it's not concentrated in a dozen additions or deletions. The um, other flavors of fundamental index, uh, our own RAFI series and the Russell fundamental index, are use what we call quarterly staggered rebalancing, which means every quarter you move one-fourth of the weight to the target which weight. Which makes sense. You're, you're spreading let, it out. You let momentum run on three-fourths of the portfolio, and one-fourth of the portfolio you say, okay, enough momentum, we're going to rebalance. Mm-hmm. And by doing it that way, you have the same turnover as once a year rebalancing, still 10 to 15% annual turnover. It's very low. It's mm-hmm. very easy to trade. So I don't, I don't fret about implementation costs, trading costs, moving market prices until we're in the trillion dollar range. So we've talked about Vanguard as a competitor and BlackRock. Let's let's let me bring up something just because I'm looking well, BlackRock's at BlackRock's one of our licensees. They run over 10, 10 So they're billion. an affiliate, not really a true competitor. Yeah, they they have competing product mm-hmm. and they have um, uh, licensed product. They're running over 10 billion globally in RAFI strategies. So you're, you're happy with them. Um, 
I'm looking at price to sales, price to book. Let's talk about dimensional funds, which is about six hundred billion, and their core fundamental index is similar to yours in that they look at price to book and other fama based fama French based factors. Right. But really that's the core of, of what they do. How do you look at them relative to, to research affiliates and what, what you guys yeah. do? Well, Rafi in U.S. international and emerging markets has has um, pretty re- reliably trounced the DFA value products, and for a an extremely simple reason, DFA hews to the religion of efficient markets and says we're gonna we're gonna anchor on cap weighting for pretty I mean, much within a, their price to book it'll be cap weighted. Yeah, they're going to cap. You know I'm going to get pushed back, and they're going to say, here's where Rob's <laughs> wrong. I'm going to forward you that email, and you can reply to it. I look forward it. to the email. But in any event, they anchor on cap weighting, which is which is a mistake. Mm-hmm. And they do wonderful work. I, I don't want to be seen as uh, suggesting that, that they're doing something bad. They're doing something better than conventional cap-weighted indexing, but they anchor on cap weighting. That's... That's their starting point, so and that's their mistake. Huh. I'm going to have to follow up with that. So I only have you for another 10 or 15 minutes. I have dozens more questions. We'll have to have you back for another time. But <laughs> let me jump into some of my favorite questions that we ask everybody, and uh, I'm looking forward to hearing your answers. Tell us the most important thing that people don't know about you. A lot of people see me as a very serious um, research guy. Uh, in point of fact, life is short. Having fun is absolutely crucial. And I know that about you from Camp Kotak and yes. other places. So uh, I don't do anything. I don't do any research. I really don't do anything that isn't fun. <laughs> I like that answer. I'm going to skip ahead to my question number eight. What do you do for fun outside of work? Well, I collect vintage motorcycles, fastest of their era. Uh, I like good wine, and I'm a movie junkie. I mm-hmm. uh, I have watched. Um, I, I write down the movies that I watch, and I rate them on a five star scale. And I've watched over fifteen hundred movies in the last six years. Wow, that's a lot of movies. Do you yeah. modern stuff, classic movies? What What's your favorite genre? Uh, I don't have a favorite. I don't watch a lot of the really old movies. I've like already old as in twenties and thirties, or old as in twenties, thirties, forties, fifties. I just saw Roman Holiday the other day. Yeah. Oh, that's a wonderful film. She's just delightful. She's and so Audrey good. Hepburn. Yeah, she was taken from us much too young. Yes, but. In any event, the the uh, I like variety in films. Uh, Wait, that's Grace this, Kelly who was taken too young. I think Audrey Hepburn lived a fairly long. She was doing you Catherine work. Catherine Hepburn lived a long time. Audrey Hepburn, I think, died in her late sixties. You could be right. I am just. Uh, Let's we, Google that. <laughs> actually, this comes up as Bing, which I don't know why. Uh, 63. You are correct. Very good memory. I'm yeah, impressed. Yeah, she had a cerebral hemorrhage while walking down the street in Manhattan. Huh. Just suddenly dropped. Really wow. sad. But um, in any event, uh, very eclectic tastes in films. If it's mainstream, Hollywood, predictable, I'm bored. 
Uh-huh. If it is weird and strange, I love it. Have you? Uh, I was a giant fan of the original Blade Runner. Did you see the, the I sequel? So. The sequel, and then I went back to watch the original for a second time right well, after. The original is still a, an astounding piece of it work. Is, it is. I saw the, Both are good. I saw the new one in the theater, and I walked out a tad disappointed, but that was almost inevitable. And I'm waiting a full year to see it again with a, a little more open-minded. Sequels are always done on the basis of an original film that was brilliant, mm-hmm. that was extraordinary, and so it suffers by comparison. It's, Caddyshack 2? Uh, <laughs> I, I did not see that. Neither did I, but the yeah. assumption is. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's talk about mentors. Who do you look at, uh, who mentored you earlier in your career, and who influenced your approach to investing? Um, early mentors were mostly people I worked for mm-hmm. who were brilliant. Dick Kroll at the Boston Company. Um, Bob Lovell at uh, Crum and Forster at First Quadrant. He founded First Quadrant and brought me in as uh, uh, president and then as CEO later. And um, um, those would be two of my most influential mentors, people I didn't work for who were mentors. Peter Bernstein was massively influential God, I in the way him. I think. Oh, he was, he was such a mensch. Against he was, the... Against the Gods. Oh, what a now, book. What, here's, here's, the, here's the pitch story. I want you to publish my book. It's going to be a book on the history of probability theory in finance, and it's going to be a bestseller. What? Right. And it was a bestseller. It, it, it sold a half a million copies. It, it's such an amazing book. I'm slowly working my way through the rest of his uh the rest of his work. And he influenced you from afar? Did you ever talk with him or meet with oh, him? Oh, we became very good friends. Very <laughs> good friends. Uh, we worked on two journal articles together, one for Harvard Business Review and one for Financial Analyst Journal, which were two of my favorite papers that I've been involved in, partly because he's such an effortless writer. Uh-huh. Uh, the paper for the Harvard Business Review, he said, why don't you do the first draft I did? And he called me uh, after he received it, and he said, Rob, there's some gems in here, but this is a turgid mess. And <laughs> <laughs> Right. He, blunt a little? <laughs> a little blunt, but in a nice way. In a, in a Hey, let me polish this up a little bit. Yeah, let me do a complete massive rewrite and turn it into something that um, That's funny. the average businessman without any investment savvy can understand. Cool. And, ha- and how did the paper come out? Came out in the Harvard Business Review. I mean, was, I mean, what was what was your final read of it? Did you like what he did to oh, it? Oh, and I how l- could you not? How could I not? Right. Um, uh, the paper was titled by Harvard Business Review. We didn't come up with the title. Uh, the right way to manage your pension. Uh, that's a little arrogant. Yeah, but uh, it's it, attention grabbing. It's attention grabbing. And it was it was an influential paper. So since we're talking about Peter Bernstein, let's talk about your favorite books. What are some of the favorite things that you have read? And I'm just going to assume Ayn Rand and, and move beyond that. What, what else do you really <laughs> like? You did touch on politics, which is another of my passions. Mm-hmm. The, uh, for those um, who don't know me, I'm a libertarian. I believe in mm-hmm. limited government, which too few people do the um well there are 
people who claim to be libertarians, but really, yeah, they're libertarians for a specific issue, and then they want yeah. the government intervening elsewhere, wherever it's convenient for them. Right, exactly. Uh, that's human nature. The the um, uh, in investments against the gods would be tough to beat. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything by Ben Graham mm-hmm. is a must read. Intelligent investor. Yeah. Um, security analysis. Security analysis. If you want to dive in deeper. Right. Um, these are some of the giants of our industry. Um, outside of investing, and actually most of my reading when I'm not working is uh, outside of investing, a couple of really fun books. Uh, 1493. Really? Uh, there the was year a, after Columbus sailed for the New there World. There was a book called 1491 that examined the Americas before Columbus landed. And the population of the Americas back then was probably in the, in the couple of hundred million range. Really? I would not have guessed that. Massively wiped out by measles and other diseases. And smallpox, yep. Where they had no... No gen- built up no genetic ability to fight those diseases, so 95% wiped out. A hundred million plus people, uh, Native Americans, were here before Columbus landed. I would early not arrivers. Early arrivers said that the shores were teeming with people. Wow, fascinating. Uh, 1493 was the sequel to that book, and I think it was even better. It shows how global commerce has reshape the world and how it creates seeds of tremendous risk. Mm -hmm. Another book that uh, I've been enjoying immensely, um, partly because it's so you can pick it it up, read a page or two, and then put it down and come back to it a month later and you haven't missed a beat. It's uh, Letters of Note, which is filled with letters written from person A to person B going back 3,000 years to modern times, letters that are just fascinating. A letter from uh, a woman uh, in China to her husband headed off to war, um, written 1400 BC. And the passion in her worrying about him, wanting him to be spectacular in battle, but please come home. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it just reminds you that all of these people were human beings. Even a letter from um, uh, Jack the Ripper to the police taunting them, and you feel the evil humanity in the huh. letter. It's just fascinating. I'm, I'm going to definitely check that out. That That is quite impressive. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Well, I was invited to be a global equity strategist at Solomon Brothers in 1987. Mm -hmm. Um, I lasted there for 14 months. Um, It was a wonderful learning experience. Um, I naively, I, I was only 32 at the time. And I naively thought I was coming in to be global equity strategist. But in fact, I was coming in to um, reinforce sales. Of course. Uh-huh. Of course. That's the job. 
And I, I remember I was brought into ATT's pension fund um, uh, the week after the market crash. They were using a mean variance optimizer, Markowitz optimizer, to look at their asset allocation, and they were puzzled. They, they said, we did an optimization. We pushed up return expectations for stocks, right. pushed down return expectations for bonds because the yields tumbled, pushed up the risk assumption for everything by 20%. Mm-hmm. Seemed like a very uh, reasonable, conservative approach. even conservative mm-hmm. approach. And our optimizer is telling us to get out of stocks and put it all in bonds. And <laughs> hey, we're, there's something wrong with that optimizer. So I came in and I explained the mathematics of why the optimizer would do that. Mm-hmm. Backwards looking as it is. Uh, no, it was forward looking. It was forward looking. They but were assuming it, higher... But isn't the inputs coming from what just no. happened? Am I mis- misremembering this? Their inputs were forward looking, so they pushed up the return for stocks because they'd crashed, okay. down the return for bonds because the yields had crashed. And it still wanted them and to roll out And it still wanted to put more into bonds because they pushed the risk up for everything. Mm-hmm. Now, I went through with them the mathematics of why it was saying that, and then I concluded by saying, throw out the optimizer, <laughs> buy stocks. Well, oh my goodness, the reaction at Solomon in response to that was fascinating because uh, they were salivating over the possibility of a $10 billion (laughs) bond portfolio construction exercise that would make them uh, 30, 40 basis points on on $10 billion, an instant $50 million. And here comes this strategist telling the client to do the opposite. Right. uh, they That's were a learning lesson, isn't it? <laughs> they, they were livid, and the lesson—the lesson learned was: you got to know who your client is, you got to know what they want, and you got to know whether what they want is what you're comfortable delivering. And and our fi- final question: Tell us something you know about investing today that you wish you knew thirty plus years ago. Oh, even fifteen years ago, when we launched Fundamental Index. We published the paper and immediately set about saying, if you can build an enhanced index relative to cap weight, you can build an enhanced index relative to fundamental index. Mm -hmm. Who better to do that than us? Well, why don't we figure out which of the fundamental measures works best and have the, the mix of fundamental metrics be dynamic and what I didn't realize at the time, we, we failed miserably. Everything we tried didn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, what I didn't realize at the time was when a strategy becomes massively more expensive, it'll have wonderful past returns and terrible future returns. Right. So we were zeroing in on the fundamental metrics that the market was loving more and was poised to disappoint. So the enhancements failed. Today, I have a better understanding that valuation matters for factors and strategies just as much as it does for stocks. Mm, Quite fascinating. We have been speaking with Rob Arnott of Research Affiliates. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, Bloomberg.com, Stitcher, Overcast, 
wherever finer podcasts are sold, and you can see any of the other 200-plus such conversations we've had. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps me put together this conversation each week. Medina Parwaner is our producer slash audio engineer. Taylor Riggs is our booker. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. 